Hello everyone, it's May 19th, 2020. This week we're going back to going back to the moon. It's our third show in a row on Artemis and or the Lunar Gateway, but the situation is evolving day by day. The main themes for today's episode are refinement, skepticism, and international cooperation. And liftoff. In the clear the tower, welcome to episode 261 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I got a quick little pre-show little news item that we can talk about. Uh, Sapphire 4 is up and running uh, on board Cygnus. So like after the last three Cygnuses have departed station, they've done experiments on board before deorbiting. We've talked about on the show, I, I think it should be pretty familiar to our listeners, but Sapphire, I haven't looked up what Sapphire actually stands for. It's all caps S-A-F-F-I-R-E. And I think it's a play on safe fire because they can do combustion experiments with absolutely no chance of burning down the ISS. <laughs> um, so Sapphire's one, two, and three were all uh, two and a half hour experiments. And Sapphire four is the first uh, eight hour experiment. And then there's uh, five and six will also fly on the last two sicknesses. It's such a cool idea because yeah, doing those types of experiments is very dangerous, obviously on board, you know, a space station. So why not do it on a departing spacecraft? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, set, things on fire in space like that's just that is the dream of every teenage kid i think <laughs> um, like it's like one thing to play with matches but doing it in space is really cool yeah. so <laughs> yeah and it, it's not only cool for kids but it's also cool for these scientists they actually found out that given all the same conditions including flow rate and atmospheric composition fires in larger containers burn slower in microgravity than fires in smaller containers. So why is that then? Because I'm kind of confused no as to why. <laughs> no clue. Okay. So not necessarily like a larger fire, but just a fire in a larger container. Yeah. They uh, the 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 fire burned on the on the last one. The fire burned. Actually, it might have been it might have been Sapphire One that they found this, but the the fuel sample burned slower than expected compared to experiments that they had done in uh, in smaller, you know, more restricted containers. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And they held everything else constant, but yep. the volume really was, I guess, the only thing that changes. Huh. Yeah. So they, they've done all sorts of materials, uh, but notably Nomex, the the fire retardant material, mm -hmm. and cotton fiberglass blends, and plexiglass, and it's pretty cool. You know, the, these aren't uh, jet fuel experiments. These are um, you know, common construction materials. All right, let's talk about the moon, you guys. Back to the moon. Um, yeah, we have like several topics. I guess we have like an overarching theme. So I guess we've been talking about it for three weeks now. Two weeks ago, yep. we talked about the landing systems. And then last week... Yeah, um, what did we talk about last week? No, la last week was HLS. And then the week before that was um, talking about Gateway not being critical. And Okay, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to talk about uh, both again. <laughs> First up um, is some refinement for the Gateway and Artemis program. And I suppose the big change, like the number one top big change, is that there are two main components to the Lunar Gateway, which is uh, the habitation module and then the propulsion module section. And those were supposed to be launched separately, but now they're talking about putting them both on the same rocket because they don't want to have to assemble them in space, which I suppose makes sense. Yeah, well, the, the whole point of doing assembly in space is so that you can, you know, launch. You don't have to put as much on one launch, right? So you can potentially have a bigger space station, right? You couldn't have launched ISS. Mm -hmm. But if, 
you know, if you design modules that then can be launched on a single flight, you know, why not do it? It presents a lot less risk and a lot less cost, you know, in terms of actually getting the system up and running. So well, that's a good point. So why did they have it being launched separately in the first place? Yeah, I think probably because they were launching on smaller vehicles and we're not a hundred percent sure what they upgraded to, but we got, we've got a guess. So I guess we should yeah, talk. Yeah. And I do remember, uh, the gateway was bigger in the past. Remember, mm, um, mm-hmm. some point last modules. year, they kind of yeah. downgraded it to a smaller version. So that would that's my guess. Right. Now it's it's just three modules, right? PPE, Halo. I think the third module is still Esprit, the European system providing refueling infrastructure and telecommunications. So yeah, that's three. Um, and then of course Orion will, you know, will eventually get there. But they have, as far as I know, they're they're not currently planning on building. I have the international habitation module. The logistics modules, although those are probably just going to be, you know, straight up replaced by the, uh, by the commercial resupply vehicles. Um, and then they were also planning on a gate uh, or an airlock module, which I think has, has been cut. I don't, I don't know. So if they get rid of the airlock module, then does that mean that if they need to go outside, they have to just depressurize uh, the whole thing? It, well, it means that they can't go outside pretty much. I think they might have to, if they're going to do that, they might have to use uh, Orion as an airlock because that, that would make way more sense than depressurizing the whole station, which, you know, who knows if they're going to be able to do that without it being, you know, a real emergency. I think if you depressurize the station, you're going home ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, it seems like that, I mean, this is obviously far less complex than, you know, the International Space Station, but correct, they're yeah. always going outside to do EVAs. It's like something's going to break. <laughs> you just know sure. it. And you're going to have to get underneath there and fix a tire, so <laughs> to speak. Yeah, hopefully not. Uh, so, yeah, the, the PPE and Halo are now targeted to launch November 2023. There was a, a document out by NASA where they basically indicated that they had validated, in quotes, a single launch of these two modules from an unnamed provider. So two things to talk about here. First, validated means, yeah, we checked the user manual and confirmed that the mass <laughs> and volume fit. I, I believe, I mean, you know, there may have been more detailed talks, but essentially, you know, this, this is validating, not booking, right? We, we haven't purchased it. We're just validating that it's possible. Um, and then an unnamed provider, pretty much the guess is that this is, uh, SpaceX Falcon Heavy. Yeah, probably. And it's worth noting that this would not be um, Falcon Heavy um, sending a second stage to the moon. This would just be a, a LEO mission. And then uh, PPE, the power and propulsion element, ah. would do the the translunar uh, burn. I, I don't know if... if Actually, you know, it, it might not just be uh, LEO. It might be um, a high orbit. But from what it sounds like, PPE is planned to do uh, all the launch. Uh, Sam in the chat asks if this is within Vulcan's capability. Might be. I don't know. I don't even know if we have a hard number for for the mass of both of these elements, or I mean, we we can figure out their combined length. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm also wondering if it is being launched on a Falcon Heavy. If that is the configuration that would allow for you know like bringing back all three boosters, yeah. or would it have to be expendable? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure we could sit down and, and crunch out some possible numbers, but uh, I don't know how reliable our calculations would be. And yeah, the, you know, this this might be within Vulcan's capability. Vulcan, um, let so to GTO, which would be close to what we're talking about. Uh, Vulcan can put fourteen thousand four hundred kilograms into GTO, whereas Falcon Heavy can do twenty six thousand seven hundred. 
So four, 14, four to, to 26, seven, it, it might be, but you know, without knowing the mass, uh, obviously it's hard to say for sure, but I'd say maybe, but it doesn't seem super likely. These two elements together would be pretty hefty. So that's, uh, PPE's hopeful launch in 2023, but getting, uh, getting Artemis up there. One of the possible changes here was for, for Artemis three, which would be the landing, um, because it's no longer going to be going to gateway. Um, NASA also talked about how they were looking at other potential orbits, uh, before the landing. And it, it looks like they are still going to go to a near rectilinear halo orbit before landing, which is, is pretty cool. Here, I'll just read this excerpt real quick. Uh, eliminating the use of gateway for Artemis 3 opens up the possibility of going to a different orbit around the moon other than NRHO that the gateway will use. And Marshall Smith, director of human lunar exploration programs, outlined several options under consideration that would bring Orion closer to the moon than NRHO, but none of the other orbits appeared to be clearly better. So yeah, I think, I think I'm reading that right, that, that Artemis 3 is going to go into an NRHO before it lands, which is pretty cool. <laughs> the reason that you would do that is because you still have to rendezvous with the human, uh, the human lander. What is it? The HLS, the human landing system. Mm -hmm. And HLS is going to have to hang out at the moon until uh, Orion gets there. So because it has to be able to orbit the moon for a, you know an amount of time, um, either you have to go into the, one of the frozen orbits or you have to go, you know, one of the frozen low orbits or you have to go into a high orbit, like a high retrograde orbit or NRHO. Or otherwise, you have to pick an orbit and then continually maintain that orbit. And so it sounds like the best way to to do a lunar well, this wouldn't be a lunar orbit rendezvous because that's uh, where the rising or the, the uh, ascent stage rendezvous I mean, that, that is kind of what's going to happen, but getting two elements out there separately, there's a name for it, and I don't remember what it is, or at least, you know, in the Apollo context, there was a name for that type of mission. But, you know, if, if you're going to do that mission profile, um, yeah, NRHO isn't a horrible choice. The only thing is that it requires more fuel to get out of an NRHO and into a landing configuration, but that's what the HLS was designed to do anyway, so why not? Um, the, the benefits of doing another orbit are a little limited. You know, if you've got the fuel, mm -hmm. you know, why not? Yeah. And so they are going to go into this orbit, but obviously there's not going to be any docking with the Lunar Gateway. Yeah, right. Artemis 3 won't go to Gateway. And by the way, Artemis 2 won't go there either. Artemis right. 2 is the first crewed flight, which is now planned to do uh, what they're calling RPO, Rendezvous and Proximity Operations. Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to go visit uh, gateway. They're going to fly around and take a look at it, but they're not actually going to dock. And there's one really important reason why they're not docking. Oh, it doesn't have a, a docking port. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of necessary, but they're still going to try to simulate docking with some other kind of a spacecraft, um, probably some other satellite that they're going to bring along or possibly, you know, the cryogenic stage itself. But if they don't have that ability to dock, then what exactly are they doing? I guess they're just, you know, doing some proximity operations, like it says, you know, just get close. Yeah, they're, they're calling it buying down future risk. Um, so I think basically what they're doing is characterizing and validating Orion in this sort of situation because Orion won't be docking with ISS Orion, you know, so, so being able to do these, you know, close in maneuvers, yeah, it's something that we do all the time. Um, but it, it's still good to validate your brand new spacecraft before you try to do its first real docking around the moon. 
Like it's bad enough to to have to wait till you get to orbit to do this, um, but you know, going out to another body is is a, an extra step altogether. So I I think it's probably a good idea to, uh, like Lavaro said, buy down the risk. I kind of jump from Artemis three not docking with Gateway to talk about Artemis two doing the rendezvous because Artemis two is just going to lunar orbit. They're not landing. Artemis 3 will go to NRHO, but presumably only to dock with um, HLS. Uh, who knows if it'll get anywhere near Gateway. But uh, Lavaro says that Artemis 3 still benefits from having Gateway there. Um, they, they could do it without Gateway, right? We talked about a few weeks ago how Gateway is non-critical to Artemis 3 actually landing on the moon. But Lavaro is saying that it's uh, going to increase success probability. And, and the only reason I can really think of is because it gives you better comms coverage. But I mean, you're going to be leaving Orion in uh, NRHO while while the HLS, the human landing system, goes down to the surface. So can can you guys think about any reasons why having Gateway around the moon as well would be particularly helpful, maybe just because it'd be in a different part of the NRHO? I read that differently. I think he was saying that taking Gateway out of the path is what is leading to the higher probability of success, not yes, having okay. to count on it. And that and that would jive with, with past discussions, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking too, because he had said that at this point, the whole point of having Gateway there is for, you know, like future longer term missions, but, you know, not for this. So they're pretty much just putting Gateway there for stuff that I guess will be taking place in 2028, 2930, somewhere around there. But for right now, you don't actually need Gateway. And so, you know, like if you can remove that from these operations, then that's just having one less point of failure. So, yeah. It's kind of like uh, trying to do the best of both worlds, right? You can just try to have Artemis 3 be the repeat of Apollo, but then you can sidestep the criticism of just doing Apollo again by having, well, no, there will be the gateway and this longer term presence and all the kind of you know, the ecosystem. There. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they're. Yeah, I think that's kind of what they're trying to say, right. <laughs> even though I don't know if I buy that, but OK. <laughs> They're still just doing, you know, flags and footprints for now. But okay, sure, they're setting it up for something bigger later on. And David, you you mentioned a couple of dates there, and I think that's probably a good a good segue into the next part of <laughs> yeah. this news item. So uh, before we leave this, talking about uh, Gateway and Artemis, um, kind of getting their uh, their missions dialed in. The article from Space News indicated that mission changes will need to be finalized in the next three months if we're going to stay on target. So with, with, with that said, um, there's another excellent Space News article out right now. Uh, the headline is NASA advisors skeptical of the agency's ability to meet the 2024 lunar landing goal. And, yeah. and, so, so this news item that we're talking about on our show, we've got three space news articles kind of stacked up on top of each other. And it's really a pessimism sandwich. So, um, I, I here, here's the meat of the pessimism. This is where it gets really heavy. Um, so I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Dennis. Sure. So I think we've talked among ourselves about skepticism of 2024 and that's <laughs> a lot of things that people on social media have been bringing up but um what was big about this was that this was a uh, a two-day meeting of uh, nasa advisory council's human exploration and operations committee and so they uh they had some members that were pretty vocal about mm -hmm. their skepticism and uh not just with the the uh, the date, but also the uh, uh, the way the human landing system HLS has been kind of um, mm -hmm. developed, and so uh, uh, an aerospace consultant uh, Pat Condon 
noted that a multi-year delay in uh, commercial crew, we, we know that commercial crew kind of mm-hmm. did slow down. And so that's 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 the other big thing in addition to the, the date is that the commercial aspect to uh, HLS flustered uh, a few of the committee members. Um, mm-hmm. With the, the date, the, the deadline, 2024, or not deadline, the target 2024, uh, Tommy Holloway, uh, one of the members of the committee, called it a pipe dream, which isn't really pulling any punches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> point out that planning to land on the moon in half the time it takes to develop a, uh, a LEO system, typically. Yeah, so that's... Yeah. I feel like you could you could get away with something like that if you're just throwing stupid amounts of money at this, which is not something that's happening. You know, if you had the money and this huge political will and everything behind it, then maybe you could do something wacky like this. But to just mm-hmm. state it isn't going to make it happen. And there was also, you know, like we alluded to before, the fact that this kind of has to get squared away in the next couple months. And yet there's still ongoing studies about different mission architectures, like the alternative orbits we talked about earlier. Although, you know, I think yeah. we kind of are still guessing at a NH uh, or NRHO for Orion's, you know, just going to the moon uh, sands uh, gateway. But, um, you know, this this was, you know, a meeting with the committee and they, you know, issued their formal findings. And so while they didn't straight up issue a finding criticizing the, the feasibility of a 2024 target date, which I just imagine politically they would not want to do that. That could cause trouble. That's my own just guess. But they did note some things to be uh, critical about, like the extremely compressed schedule developing the HLS landers, fewer trade studies, like you're saying, kind of narrow down the focus and really get on with it. And uh, ensuring that there's adequate testing of the landers because, um, you know, this is a, uh, it's not a joke uh, putting people on the moon. It's something that half a century since we've, any humans have done it and to go and try and bat this out in just a few more years, really. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, if 2024 is the target, I don't know, like when um, the HLS uh, developers, right, the three um, that are going to get down selected to one or two but the three we talked about right dynetics uh the national team led by blue origin and then uh spacex using starship did we talk about what the uh target date for having the hls kind of selected and finished is because i know that 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 story was all about them getting what uh, a number of months something like six more months to really develop it more uh, getting the money to do that yeah to have that final selection i i don't know if they have a date i thought they did and we might have mentioned it but i've since forgotten but that's not 2024 right you know what i mean so it's like (laughs) (laughs) this is yeah this is at a very high pace that everything has to come together and so and and kind of like where you're getting at before um david the uh using the commercial partners uh they were pretty hard on that but lavero kept uh emphasizing that kind of commercial doesn't mean that we're just going and contracting this out to, you know, Dynetics, Blue Origin, or SpaceX, that NASA is going to be really, really involved, and that even thinking, calling it commercial is sort of the wrong way to describe it, and so NASA will be involved in every step, which is kind of, uh, I don't know, I mean, would would you have called the Apollo missions commercial? No. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, the, that's the funny thing, is that, um, you know, we, we talk about being in the commercial spaceflight era, but really the commercial spaceflight that we're doing is companies launching other companies' payloads. Um, when mm-hmm. it comes to NASA, yeah, NASA has always used commercial partners. I mean, 
Um, NASA's done, you know, relatively little actual design and construction on their own, at least uh, of launchers and, and space, you know, crewed spacecraft. So yeah, this, this isn't that big of a change. Um, also, I have an answer for you for the HLS down selection. Um, okay. right now, um, the down selection is scheduled for next February, 2021. And, um, that really doesn't leave a lot of time because the crude landing would happen no earlier than 2024, but they still need to do an uncrewed landing in 2023. Now, Starship is hoping to do an uncrewed landing demo in 2022. Well, you know, that's also very ambitious, but, but yeah, we're, <laughs> this is not a lot of time. Actually, there, there's a fantastic quote that I really like. This is from Pat Condon, the consultant. And he said, I would assert that we know an awful lot more about putting a crew in low earth orbit than we know about landing a crew on the moon. Yet we're going to execute that development in half the time. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, guys, I, I'm ready to go ahead and uh, say we're not going to the moon in 2024. And I've, I, you know, I think we've all been kind of skeptical this whole time, but I got so caught up, um, in seeing the landers two weeks ago. And, you know, I've, I've been getting really excited and seeing, uh, SLS beginning to reach some big milestones. And I, I think I kind of forgot about how skeptical I was and, and need to continue to be because I don't, I don't think we're going to do it, guys. Yeah. Well, by 2024, probably not. I mean, there's, you know, there's always going to be a slip in schedule when it comes to these things. So I don't think anyone was actually thinking it was going to be 2024. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the interesting things is that, um, this meeting, they, they mentioned how, one of the big pitfalls is that the 2024 date is being pushed onto NASA, right? NASA isn't mm -hmm. saying, okay, we can do it by this point. Let's go. This might be a little political here, but it's basically the White House wanting the mm -hmm. cachet of saying we sent people back to the moon and saying, okay, you are going to go in 2024 uh, for, you know, to make us look good. So, you know, that, that top down push where we start from a date and then get everything else in line it is just not possible if one of the other variables is fixed. And that other variable, of course, is, is money. If you want to pick a date, you can't pick the money. If you want to pick the money, you can't pick a date. <laughs> yeah, right, that's a, do it fast, do it right, or do it cheap, right? Pick today. Yeah. Exactly. And, and presumably doing it right, doing it safe is not a, a variable that we're willing to flex on either. So, and I, I think Sam in the chat is right. They're, they're saying that doing it without studies would be risky, but if they wanted to do it in four years, they need to take risks. So, you know, with, the, with these three variables slipping around, I think it's almost certainly going to be the date that we, that we fall on. I, I think that that's going to be the ultimate choice because we have people's lives in line, but it could easily be the, you know, it could possibly be the risk that, that gets pushed up instead of the date. But ho hopefully, hopefully not. I don't, I don't think any of us expect that to be the case. I think the, the only real worry here is that they're going to push so hard that we have a big failure that pushes the date back even farther than if we had picked a reasonable date to begin with. Um, and that was certainly, um, a, a worry for Apollo. And actually, that's one of the things that I really liked about For All Mankind. I think they talked about, about how, you know, early failures lead to a much longer you know, if you just take your time and do it right the first time, it's going to take a lot less, uh -huh. you know, fixing later on. But so, sorry to bring a uh, uh, totally uh, fictional <laughs> timeline <laughs> into this discussion, but kind of kind of reminded me of some of the 
some of the themes. I guess it's like that old saying, you measure twice, cut once. You ever heard that mm-hmm. before? So let's mm-hmm. get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the Artemis Accords, the third section of this little series here, um, which I like the name, the Artemis Accords. It oh, sounds yeah. like something from Star Trek. It does sound. <laughs> it's very Trekish. <laughs> but yeah, so what are the Artemis Accords? Yeah, so when you're operating for um, like the International Space Station, the kind of uh, agreement between all the countries is, you know, is called the Intergovernmental Agreement, the IGA. And so the idea for these uh, accords is to set up a bunch of bilateral agreements between the U.S. and whoever else wants to participate in Artemis and uh, potentially beyond maybe uh, to figure out a framework for how to cooperate on the surface of the moon. Because we do have Outer Space Treaty doesn't, I don't think, go enough into you know the real nitty-gritty details of if we create this sort of lunar ecosystem the idea being right to have not a permanent but semi-permanent kind of uh, presence and more sustained uh, uh, activity on the moon and so these artemis accords were announced by you know nasa uh, jim bridenstine probably did the uh, the announcement himself it being a big deal uh and so uh yeah uh gateway will still be uh governed by this uh, IGA, the Intergovernmental Agreement, that's used for the ISS, because that really works well for space stations, as you can imagine. (laughs) And so um, what are these sort of agreements to come up with Um, that you need to affirm that the exploration of the moon will be for peaceful purposes? So it really does draw a lot on the uh, Outer Space Treaty, that uh, how to register space objects, that you provide emergency assistance or how, you know, under what conditions uh, emergency assistance will be provided to other nations, that you'll be transparent in your plans and operations, the technical interoperability of space systems. And then there's also the uh, the free release of science data, which is pretty cool. Um, I guess, you know, you're taking data on a very neutral body and so release the data freely. Uh, protect the landing sites of Apollo and uh, the robotic lunar missions. Um, abide by UN guidelines for uh, mitigating orbital debris, create safety zones around sites where NASA and its partners are conducting activities, and also these agreements will touch on the right to extract and use lunar resources for the different nations involved. So quite a lot of meat on there, and um, there might be other things too. This probably was not a exhaustive list. So that last one, the right to extract and use lunar resources is so interesting to me because yes, it's something that we have to think about in the future, but it's, it has nothing to do with Artemis right now. (laughs) Like we're not even anywhere close. I figured that by that they just mean the right to, you know, take things from the lunar surface, but oh, not like samples? to use the resource. Yeah, like samples maybe, but that's, yeah, that's a weird way to put really it. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, but it's, it's interesting that, well, I, I guess I haven't actually read the Accords, but that we're already, you know, saying, okay, this is this is what we're going to do, you know, like, mm-hmm. hey, get get ready. We're going to, yeah, Sam in the chat says nabbing samples has legal precedent. Correct. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're already talking about, okay, how are we going to divide this up and, mm-hmm. and potentially profit off of it? I mean, this isn't, this extract and, and utilize, like, it's kind of, I don't know. I, it just, it seems very early, but I guess, you know, you really need to start on this stuff before you really take those first big steps. So I've been, I've been looking, cause I'm like, well, I probably need to actually go read this at some point. And all I can find is statements about the Accords. I can't actually find the text of the Accords. But really this, this sounds just again, like we kind of alluded to at the beginning that it's just why, why is this so early? Because NASA, I think, is trying to get this in there on the ground floor 
Right. Because they're okay. very rivalish with China. Well, and also our administration is very rivalish with other, you know, internal, you know, American factions. It's really interesting. Like Apollo was very much an outward facing. Yes, we did. We did some good science, but the main drive was to look good and to, to beat Russia, you know, mm -hmm. to prove that we had won the Cold War, essentially. Um, and that that's kind of what Artemis is turning into. And it's funny because, like, Apollo did it quite successfully. You know, we took that uh, that political goal and turned it into a science goal and an engineering goal. And it, and it worked really well. We kind of, you know, pivoted very well on that fulcrum. I, I don't want to say that there's no way that Artemis can do it because it's been done. But I, I wonder how likely it is. But yeah, anyway, so I've been looking a little bit for the text of the Accords, and all I can find are NASA's um, basic overviews of each of the each of the articles of the Accords. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I can't find the, the full text. If anybody listening um, knows where to find this, if you'd shoot it to us, I'd really appreciate it, because this is something that I'd like to read. Whether or not it actually becomes something that's widely adopted, it'd be good to, to A know if they've actually published all of them because I wouldn't be shocked if they hadn't. Uh, and, and B, it'd be a good thing to, to read and be familiar with. Okay, so we got three short and sweets. What's the first one? Well, first up, 3D printing had a good week. Relativity Space, known for their goal of 3D printing nearly every component of their rocket, passed a key milestone on the way to their first launch in 2021. 3D printed tank underwent pressure testing until it burst, exceeding the safety factor requirements by 10%. Meanwhile, Rocket Crafters concluded test firings of its hybrid engine, which consists of a 3D printed plastic fuel core in addition to liquid propellant. The company plans to test launch a sounding rocket from New Mexico Spaceport America, although that has faced delays due to the current pandemic. Alright, next, the first real task for Space Force is on the ground. With NASA and SpaceX preparing for the first crewed launch from U.S. soil since 2011, Space Force has been conducting exercises for rescuing astronauts on land or at sea if the mission is aborted. 45th Operations Group Detachment 3, based at Patrick Air Force Base in Florida, will be renamed Task Force 45 for the upcoming launch and includes specialized rescue divers, pilots, and communications and medical experts. Part of the force will also be deployed to South Carolina and Hawaii to cover the 155 million square mile area that falls under their responsibility. And then finally, Skysat to hitch a ride with Starlink. Planet Labs is scheduled to fly its next six Skysat Earth observation satellites alongside SpaceX's Starlink in two upcoming launches this summer. The first three Skysats will fly on Starlink's ninth mission next month. The following three will launch later this summer. Planet Labs already has 15 Skysats in sun synchronous orbit. These next Six will be put into a mid-inclination orbit of 53 degrees to complement the sun synchronous fleet, improving Planet Lab's ability to compete in the national security market. All right, so moving on. Uh, this week in spaceflight history, um, so the clue was no stones, th no no stones thrown. That's hard to say. No stones thrown. Uh, we had two winners, Christian Lowe and the Greek. So congratulations. Yeah, so this was a cool clue for a pretty cool event, and I'm kind of surprised that they got it so easily, but you know they nailed it. And uh, and Ben Hallard actually just tweeted an hour ago with the correct event, but um, not a. It sounds like he's not sure if he got it right, but he got it right. Yeah. So this week in spaceflight history is the 19th of May, 2000. And I'm just like, is, 
Isn't this within the right window? Yeah, it's totally within the right window. So I don't know what Ben was a little unsure about. So this week in spaceflight history is the 19th of May, the year 2000. It just sounds weird to say May 2000 for some reason at the mo- in the moment. Uh, but it was the <laughs> launch of STS-101, which was the first shuttle with a glass cockpit. So you don't want to throw stones in a glass house, a glass cockpit. All right. So STS-1 was an Atlantis mission. And uh, the, the glass cockpit is called MEDS, the Multifunction Electronic Display System. And MEDS is really cool. So the cockpit used to be full of four CRT displays. Uh, I believe they were monochromatic. They were just green. And uh, they couldn't even support graphic display. It was just text. So, so there are four CRTs, and then the rest of the data was relayed um, with steam gauges, right? Just, I mean, like not literal steam, but that's what, that's what they're called. They're just mechanical displays. And there were 32 of those suckers. And the problem is, uh, A, mechanical displays aren't great in the year 2000. But on top of that, a lot of the manufacturers who had built those displays, those steam gauges, had gone out of business. Not only had they stopped producing the the components, but they had actually gone out of business. And so whenever one of these things broke, they had to swap it out from their fleet of gauges and just repair... <laughs> repair the broken component and you know nasa was the one getting it up and running instead of either sending it back to the manufacturer or throwing it out and buying a new one so um, nasa using glass cockpits actually has a long heritage before sts 101 Um, in fact uh, while glass cockpits really originated with the military um, nasa did you know follow-on work in glass cockpits that actually their studies led to FAA building their certification program uh, for commercial aviation to use them. And uh, co- commercial aviation began installing them uh, or began designing and using them in, in 1980 and in, in that sort of era. So 1980 was commercial aviation took shuttle till 2000 to get up and running. Now meds, of course, these these displays uh, are spaceworthy, so there's a, a lot of modifications, but they share heritage with, or shared heritage, uh, with uh, with Boeing. So the displays themselves, like the actual uh, LCD uh, sheet, came off the same assembly line as the ones that were installed in Boeing 777s. Some of the modifications were they added a polyester sheet. Uh, on top, just in case the glass broke to keep the, the glass contained, to keep the, the debris contained. Um, those polyester sheets also had some really fancy anti-glare chemicals in them. NASA, they have high operating standards, but NASA actually said that these things were as readable in pitch dark as they were in direct sunlight, which is really impressive uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for LCDs, especially LCDs in the 2000s era, right? For, for a long time, uh, the the main hurdle for using uh, LCD displays in in glass cockpits was just the fact that um, LCD the the field of view for LCDs was was so crappy for a long time. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys remember you know sitting in front of early screens and yeah. not being exactly sure what color was on the screen because each eye was seeing something different. And uh, and then the the med system also is is very robust in terms of single event upsets. So in particular, they were concerned about latch ups, where you have a cosmic ray hit one of your components. I think usually memory, but you know processor are also uh, 
are also susceptible, but a, a latch up would be where that bit goes on and stays on. Um, and there's nothing you can do to, to bring it back down. I think be, I'm totally guessing here. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I would love to have a better explanation, but I believe you just uh, overcharge that component. And so you can never have uh, your, your system just doesn't send a higher voltage through to actually clear out that one and change it back to a zero. But the, uh, the single event latchups, um, were that, you know, it's, it's kind of a standard technique, but basically the system could detect when that happened and then it would just basically reboot that unit. And we'll talk about the individual units in a little bit. But the, the real genius of meds was that they, built meds to be a drop-in replacement. And when they talk about upgrading uh, shuttles to the med system, they, they talk about it as dropping in new components because they didn't have to update any of the other avionics on the shuttle. Um, basically, they could take all of the original analog data and display it on these displays. So to do that, they actually use distributed processing. Um, there were four IDPs, integrated display processors, and the IDPs um, did a lot of the heavy lifting. They talked to the analog to digital converters upstream towards the sensors. Uh, they talked to the keyboards um, that were, you know, built in around the glass displays. Um, and I believe they had an additional keyboard in the center console. Um, between the the front two uh, the front two seats, but they they talked to the uh, digital analog converters. They talked to the keyboards. They talked to the uh, multiple computers on board, the general purpose computers and the main computer, um, and they gathered up all this data and handed. They, it didn't. The IDPs don't pare down any of this data. They just process the data and they hand it all off to the MDUs. The MDUs are the multifunction display units. They're the actual screens, but they. They're smarter than just being screens. So first off, there were 11 of them. There are nine in the cockpit and two in the aft deck. So not the lower or the mid deck, the, the aft deck near the windows. And so the MDUs are both a computer and the display in one unit. Um, the computer interprets the data, renders the graphics, and drives the display. And then obviously the display is driven and is the human interaction layer. And because they had this uh, distributed processing, any of the MDUs could play any role. They could just, you know, display any data that you wanted. Um, and so if one MDU failed, you could just grab another MDU and say, okay, you do this job. And, you know, they all pull up data from the IDPs. It's a architecture that I think feels really familiar. Like that's all I have to do to explain it. And I probably over explained it for a lot of people. And yet, in those few words, we understand how how this whole thing works. Hmm. Um, but I mean, think about doing that back in 2000. That that was not a super common thing that the public would understand. You know, you kind of have to be more a little more intuitive uh, when you were explaining this. So I, I think uh, meds is really fantastic, and I have uh, an obsession with glass cockpit interfaces. I just think it's such an interesting uh, interface configuration that we just don't use today, right? We we use mice and keyboards and touchscreens, and I love the idea of having buttons around the the perimeter of a display. It was one of the things that I truly loved about uh, Star Trek Enterprise was all the all the glass displays. Oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so back to STS-101. Yeah, it's the first uh, the first mission with a glass cockpit, but there are some other really cool things uh, to talk about. So 
initially, um, STS-101 and STS-69 were going to be the same mission. Unfortunately, in that one mission, uh, there was uh, an EVA um, that was basically completing uh, installation of Zvezda at ISS. Zvezda's launch slipped, which means that the EVA had to slip as well because you can't install a component that's not present. Um, and so what they did was they needed to send a, a vehicle to ISS. We, they needed the supplies. So they split the mission into two groups. The main crew stuck with STS-69 and then... Um, the backup crew was applied to STS-101. And then since they had extra seats sitting around because there were three people going on EVA on in uh, 96, I believe they actually transferred people from a Soyuz over to shuttle to fill those extra seats. But Expedition 2 flew on STS-101. Uh, once 101 got to uh, ISS, um, they did a bunch of air safety tasks, including sampling the air and installing uh, small fans all over the place. They called them personal fans um, to help circulate the air. Um, they replaced the Russian fire extinguishers and the smoke detectors. Uh, they also reboosted the station. And uh, even though their main EVA was delayed, they did a, a another EVA. Um, they assembled the Strela crane. There was a mention of a U.S. crane. I'm not 100% sure what that piece of equipment was, but apparently they uh, they moved it from one place to another. Uh, the, the term was reseeded it. They also installed some handrails and ran some cables preparing for future EVAs. I believe most of those cables were for cameras. That That's all well and good. And, you know, routine missions, uh, I guess no construction mission can ever be truly routine. But this is kind of a, a well-understood mission mission timeline, I guess, a mission path. Like, we, we understand what's going on. On reentry, there was some excitement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, basically... Uh, Atlantis almost became Columbia. Columbia failed on reentry when a crack opened up. Well, you know, foam impinged on the uh, on the leading edge of the wing. Uh, foam from the external tank uh, cracked some of the um, some of the heat shields on the on the leading edge of the wing. That crack was pretty darn big. Um, it's funny when you see articles talking to the general public, they act as if this is a small crack, but to us, this is really big. Uh, so Columbia's crack, we're not 100% sure of the size for obvious reasons, but we suspect that it was 20 or 2.5 centimeters wide and 90 centimeters long. Atlantis, when they landed, they found a gap that was six millimeters wide. So not two and a half centimeters, just six millimeters, but that was almost enough to cause breakup on reentry. So this crack uh, was actually um, due to uh, maintenance that had been done on the vehicle two years prior. Wow. And so that was the previous flight was two years prior? Uh, actually, it was three years prior. And no, it wasn't the it wasn't the previous flight. It actually flown multiple times before this issue was found. Mm. Um, so the problem, uh, came down to the, the insulation. They're, they're called the, uh, butterfly gap fillers. Um, and they're, those gap fillers are, are pieces of basically batting, right? It's, it's kind of like a, you can think of it as a, as a sheet of felt, basically. Um, and they're shoved down in between, 
uh, the heat shields and it's, it's the plasma, it's there to insulate against plasma pushing its way through the gaps in the heat shields. And unfortunately, this particular gap filler was installed improperly, like I said, three years ago or three years prior to this launch. And it was never spotted in inspections. And that's because you couldn't see the gap filler without removing uh, two panels to get in and actually see the the gap filler, and so um, the the crack got its worst on 101, and then before you know, then it was spotted. But yeah, six millimeters wide. Okay, all right. And I got a clue for next week, Dennis. Even though you've seen the document, I would be kind of surprised if. Well, no, you might be able to get this one pretty quick. I think it's a great clue. Thank you. So what is our clue for next week then? All right. Next week in 1971, I want you to think about the joke. What's the, the punchline is 789. Why, why was six afraid of seven? Because 789. There we go. <laughs> uh, so the, the clue is for next week in 1971, nine, eight, six, and seven. Nine, eight, six, and seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Interesting clue, possibly a punchline. So if you think you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Okay, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We've got a couple of launches and some other things to watch on TV. So what's that first launch? Well, first up on May 20th, we've got an H2, we got H2B304 or Kono 29. Um, this is H, also designated HTV9, uh, H2 transfer vehicle. This is the ninth flight. Um, with this, you know, uncrewed cargo resupply uh, coming from JAXA. And so, again, that's on May 20th uh, at 1730 UTC, an instantaneous launch window. And it's launching out of Tanegashima, uh, specifically the Osaki site at the Yoshinobu uh, launch pad 2. All right. And uh, that will be rendezvousing with ISS on Monday, May 25th. Um, you can watch coverage of the rendezvous and capture on NASA TV. Capture is scheduled at 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday the 25th. So the capture is 8.15 a.m. The coverage will start at 6.45 a.m. And then it'll be installed uh, later that day. The coverage begins at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And then while we're talking about NASA TV, we're actually going to step back in time a little bit. We are getting ready for the Crew Dragon Demo 2 mission with, with people on it. Very excited. Um, so we're going to talk about some of the um, additional news conferences that are going to be happening on NASA TV because they're certainly going to be <laughs> interesting. So the first one uh, is on Wednesday. So this is going to be the uh, Crew Arrival News Conference. That's at 12 p.m. Wednesday, the 20th, 12 p.m. Eastern, of course. Or, yeah. So that'll be 12 p.m. Eastern, uh, of course, on Wednesday, the 20th. Then the next, um, conf or the next, uh, briefing after that will be the, uh, post flight readiness review briefing. That's always cool. Um, that's going to be at 6 p.m. on Thursday, the 21st. Um, then the next day, there's going to be a virtual crew engagement event. Um, I think that's basically going to be quick Q and A's from Twitter. Um, I, I may or may not actually, um, sit in and watch that. That's going to be at a time to be determined <laughs> on Friday, uh, the 22nd. And then as we get closer to the launch, there's going to be a pre-launch briefing on May 25th, Monday at, at a TBD time. And then Tuesday, the 26th, there's going to be the administrator countdown clock briefing. That's Tuesday, May 26th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And then directly after the launch. Oh, actually, it looks like a few hours after the launch. So 
uh, 6 p.m. Uh, on Wednesday after the launch. There will be the post-launch news coverage uh, as well. Um, and then next week, we'll go ahead and talk about the rendezvous and docking. So David, when is that actual launch happening? It's happening on the 27th at 2033 UTC or about 1633 or 430 in the afternoon on the East Coast. Um, and that's launching, obviously, from Kennedy Space Center, Launch Complex 39A. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we still got a little over a week to go. Ooh, so excited, you guys. I'm yep, so getting excited. Close. But then also, let's step back in time again. There's also another launch. Uh, we kind of we got it slightly out of order. Um, yeah. On May 22nd, prior to that launch on the 27th, there is a Soyuz, a Soyuz 2.1B with a frigate upper stage and that's launching EKS-4 or Tundra-4, which uh, is a Russian early warning satellite. And that's launching from Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia. And that's launching at 0700 UTC. So very, very early in the morning here in the States, but maybe you can watch it possibly. I don't know if that's even going to be broadcast, but there's another launch for you. Alrighty, and those are your upcoming spaceflight events. With that, let's gear up the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.